Welcome to Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. This podcast seeks to explore and explain various perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what I loosely and collectively call the Laws of War. It's a podcast that hopes to provide conversations on hot topics and debates that will be of interest to experts in the field, but also to help make these areas of law and policy more intelligible and accessible to the non-expert. If you're new to the podcast, I'd encourage you to listen to episode one, in which I talk more about the purpose and scope of the podcast, and lay some of the foundation for most of the issues that we discuss through the various episodes. You can, of course, also find links to all the materials discussed in all of the episodes, including links to the impressive list of great reading recommendations that have been made by all of our guests on our website, which is at jibjabpodcast.com. My guest in this episode is Dr. Chile Ibowosuji, former president of the International Criminal Court and currently a distinguished international jurist at the Lincoln Alexander Law School at the newly renamed Toronto Metropolitan University in Toronto, Canada. Dr. Ibao Suji was, of course, a guest on the podcast before to discuss the ICC and a particular judgment of the court. But in today's discussion, we look at the war in Ukraine, again, in particular, from the perspective of what role the ICC can and cannot play in the war. And we begin with questions about how the war might provide some impetus for strengthening the relevant legal regimes and institutional systems, such as amending the Rome Statute itself and the provisions on jurisdiction for the prosecution of the crime of aggression which leads into a discussion of some of the alternative methods proposed for prosecuting the crime of aggression in Ukraine. And we dive into issues of immunity and jurisdiction raised by such proposals, how the ICC and Ukrainian courts might share the burden of prosecuting war crimes, as well as what to make of the claims of genocide that have been bandied about on both sides. And returning to the bigger questions of how restoring the USAD Bellum regime and the collective security system, it's a fascinating discussion. I should note that there was some delay in editing and publishing this episode as it was recorded back in April. But perhaps sadly, the war continues and the discussion remains as relevant as ever. So with that, let's get to the conversation with Dr. Chile Ibowosuji. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for making time for this and thank you for coming back. Thank you very much. Well, we could talk about so many things regarding the conflict in Ukraine, but as former president of the ICC, you'll obviously have some very keen insights regarding the role that the ICC can play in prosecuting both war crimes in Ukraine, uh, as well as how you think the crime of aggression might be otherwise prosecuted, given the ICC can't be involved for reasons that we'll get into. So we'll want to unpack and dive into the weeds of several of these issues, but perhaps we should begin with the larger issues and work our way towards the more specific problems. And in your recent David Goodman uh, lecture at the University of Toronto, you picked up on a BBC headline that questioned whether the invasion of Ukraine could be the end of the current world order and suggested that actually the invasion of Ukraine should be the end of the current world order. So how so? And more specifically, how do we bring that about? Thank you very much. Straight to the point, the, the reason is that I, I made that point is that we cannot keep having a world order where you have five people at the United Nations Security Council, any of whom can exercise a veto power and stop the international community from resolving critical questions about international peace and security. Now, we've, we saw that in Syria, and we're seeing that now 
in uh, Ukraine uh, because some people have a veto power out of 193 member states of the United Nations. That is a world order that is problematic. It has been for a while, and we have to ask ourselves whether that is working and whether that should be maintained, one. And secondly, as I was keen to stress during the Goodman uh, lecture, it's about time that peace is uh, recognized as an actionable right uh, by way of consecra uh, consecration in a treaty, uh, so that it is a treaty right, not a mere declaration, but a treaty right, and so we can engage the idea of UBU's uh, EB remedium, um, where there is a right, a violation of that right uh, contemplates um, reparation or damages to be uh, paid to the victims. So here, if we have an internationally recognized right to peace, a treaty right in that regard, we will be then contemplating a scenario where victims of wars of aggression can launch their own proceedings against the authors of that war of aggression and accomplices to that war of aggression, notwithstanding what the states of nationality of the victims of aggression tend to uh, want to do to end the war by way of armistice agreements and uh, things like that, which may come with clauses in them say, well, uh, we, as we agree to now have peace going forward, but uh, there should be no legal proceedings after this. That will bind the states, but it should not be something that binds uh, victims, individual victims of uh, crime of aggression. Interesting. So there's two big aspects of what you're suggesting, and maybe to take them in reverse order, I mean, this idea of a, a right to peace. You know, it's interesting that in Japan, the courts have grappled with the concept of a right to peace through its interpretation of the preamble and Article 9 of the Constitution of Japan, suggesting that there may indeed be a right to peace in the Japanese Constitution. But how likely do you think it is that states would agree to a, a new treaty that, that enshrined a so-called right to peace in international laws as a, a human right instrument? I, I do think it's a very realistic prospect of um, a carefully conceived right to peace, not something that's all things, all people, that tends to be the case. I mean, right. uh, the, the idea of right to peace is not new. This is not the first time uh, we're hearing about it. Uh, it has been on the agenda of the United Nations Human Rights Council for a long time. But usually what tends to happen is when you have these ideas and as happens in committee stages, everybody comes in and says, yes, um, this is a good idea. Now, add this to it. And somebody else says, yes, we'll add this to it. Before you know it, the whole thing has gone pear-shaped <laughs> and all over the place. Um, so that you now have a scenario where uh, somebody says, well, um, uh, racial discrimination should be part of rights to peace. Uh, discrimination against um, anybody is part of rights to peace. Put it in there. And then that freaks everybody out. <laughs> Some states say, hang on, we are grappling with problems of racial discrimination, gender equality, sexual orientation. So if you put all that stuff into the idea of right to peace. Well, we don't know where we stand on this thing. So that sort of, as I said, um, spook people and then they say, hang on, hang on, let, 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 we're not sure yet. But if you narrow down the definition or the, the, the orientation of what we're talking about to the war of aggression, right. right, which everybody accepts that this is not on, 
then it becomes manageable as a concept. And we can see that from A to B and where it's going. So that's, in my view, uh, the approach to it, not a concept that is everything to everyone, right. but a carefully designed system that produces the result of saying, you launch a war of aggression, then the victims of that war, be it, you know, uh, civilians who were minding their business and you unleash death, mayhem and destruction upon them, or even the mothers of soldiers you have taken to war that they need not be fought after the fact, as long as it is understood that it is a war of aggression and international law by now has come to a, a rather um, clearer definition of what we mean by the war of aggression that is international crime, then those who are authors of that war and other states and corporations who are complicit in it will then have to make reparation to victims of that war. I think that is a very easily conceivable idea that states can live with if we, you know, narrow down the thing to what it should be. And as I understand it, then the, one of the roles that this right would play would be to provide an individual remedy to the victims litigated in claims against the individuals who are responsible for the decisions that led to the war of aggression. Yes, indeed. Uh, individuals who do it states themselves as well. Uh, corporations, by the way, here it's important to stress, Greg, that when I talk about the war of aggression, again, one of the difficulties that uh, the idea ran into in the past, the idea is not incompatible with self-defense or possession of uh, weapons or manufacture of weapons for purposes of self-defense, either individual or collective self-defense of nations. And NATO can continue to function. And if I prepare itself, you can have alliances of states who say, hang on, uh, we want to protect ourselves against aggression, so we're going to arm ourselves. And we have industries at home who manufacture weapons to do that. But those facts themselves uh, will not uh, constitute, in my uh, conception of the idea, um, you know, violation of the right to peace. So that the company that manufactures weapons and sells them to a country that needs to defend itself, uh, or, or countries that need to defend themselves, would not be violating the right to peace simply by manufacturing, manufacturing and selling weapons. Where the difficulty lies is once you now see that you've punished state A with weapons supposedly for self-defense, and then state A turns around and it launches a war of aggression that everyone says, hang on, this is a war of aggression. And then you continue to supply that state A with weapons to continue to prosecute that war, then you're in trouble. That's how I conceive of right. the idea. Well, we're going to come back to the crime of aggression. But before we do that, the second big idea that you sort of suggested is the structural problem that everybody sort of recognizes is that you have five permanent members with a veto. But you seem to be, I guess, a little bit more sanguine about the prospect of changing or addressing that problem and changing that structure. So we could spend, of course, the entire hour talking about that. But how do you actually see that coming about? But that's a starting point, of course, that, that we have you know, P5, the question is, where do we go from that? And where we go from that starting point is to say, it is now time to amend the room statute in order to close that gap that was brought about by the P5s. It is the P5s that drove the pressure 
that resulted in, in the gap. And the gap we're talking about would be Article 15, base uh, paragraph 5 of the Rome Statute that says that the ICC does not have independent jurisdiction to exercise and over the crime of fire aggression, uh, jurisdiction over uh, nationals or territory of uh, a state that is not a party to the Rome Statute, except when the Security Council makes a referral. So that's where the problem is. So that creates a gap and it's only in relation to the crime of aggression that you have that kind of provision in the Rome Statute. You don't have it for the other three crimes, genocide, war crimes and crimes against humanity. It's only the crime of aggression that has that gap in it. And it, it needs to be amended, first of all, to delete that provision from the Rome Statute. Another amendment that can be done would be uh, to open up who from the UN can refer the case to the situation rather to the ICC and give the ICC jurisdiction to exercise over the matter. Uh, now, if people use the veto power to stop the Security Council from making that referral under Article 13b of the Room Statute, then it is seen that this is done in bad faith because somebody wants to protect themselves, so they exercise that veto power, then it should be possible for the UN General Assembly to either recommend for other states to do the referral under the authority of the General Assembly or even make the referral directly itself if a construction of the UN Charter can allow that to be done. But the idea is at the Rome Statute end to open it up so that uh, Rome Statute recognizes or the ICC system recognizes that another authority from the United Nations, mind you, yeah, not anybody else, but from the UN itself can originate a referral to the ICC and it becomes the proper ground to exercise jurisdiction. That is the other thing that can be done. And for that, you don't need the Security Council or the UN to make that amendment to the Rome Statute. It is up to the member states or the Rome Statute to make that amendment themselves. Okay. So I'm glad to hear that we're, we're actually not talking about amending the UN Security Council itself. We're really just talking about the problem of the P5 in relation to the exercise of jurisdiction of the ICC. But there's two aspects to, to what you just said. And one of them, I think some commentators would suggest is itself pretty difficult, which is that amending the Rome Statute along the lines that you've suggested to take away the control over the exercise of jurisdiction from the P5. And some suggest that that by itself is going to be rather difficult. I mean, what do you see as the, are the prospects for that? I don't see it at all as being difficult. It requires political will. Maybe that's where the difficulty lies. But in terms of actually doing it, we have seen that the, the Rome statute system has been able to, to operate without the P5s uh, stopping it. Even if you remember the, um, the negotiation of the Rome statute, the starting point was that uh, the ICC should not exercise jurisdiction in any case, in any event, without the Security Council triggering it, uh, in other words, the Security Council should have the monopoly right. on whether the ICC gets to exercise jurisdiction over the crime of aggression. So that was the starting point in negotiating the room studied provision on the crime of aggression. But the, the other states pushed back. I mean, uh, thanks to countries like Germany, the Netherlands, Belgium, and others, and not from the G77 side, countries like Nigeria, pushing back to say, no, the Security Council cannot have that kind of control over how the ICC functions. So there was that debate. Uh, I happened to be in the room 
at the time during the negotiation of the definition of the gramophile question. So that was the, you know, push and shove. In the end, they then settled on that compromise position of saying, all right, ICC can exercise jurisdiction over the crime of aggression, but not against nationals or territory of a non-member state without Security Council. So that was a compromise. Right. So the point I make there is that you saw that the non-P5 members of the state party to the ICC wanted ICC to have that jurisdiction and they pushed and then finally got a compromise. Now, having got a compromise, you remember that there was a round two to that battle and that was whether the crime of aggression provisions of the room statute should even be activated in, in 2017. That was round two. Again, the ICC member states and non-P5s again pushed that, yes, we are going to activate that. And the P5s threatened, you know, hell and brimstone, told that, you know, the world will collapse if you do this. And the other said, it will not collapse. We are doing it. And so here we are. So the ICC states parties, yes, can amend those provisions, as I mentioned, and, and the world will now come to an end. The only thing that will happen would be that those who are minded to launch crimes of aggression in future will think twice before doing it. Right. But of course, we're talking about this in the context of the crime of aggression having been committed in Ukraine and the extent to which that crime of aggression can be prosecuted in short order. And so while you're right that the Rome Statute has been amended, it took a considerable amount of time. And so some would suggest that it's going to take too long to try to amend the, the Rome Statute for the purposes of the prosecution in relation to uh, the invasion of Ukraine. And there might be better alternatives. What do you say to that? I think that's a good point. It's a fair point on that. The point there is um, it would be awkward for any lawyer to suggest that go ahead and amend the Rome Statute and give the uh, ICC jurisdiction over the crime of aggression in relation to Ukraine. Uh, it doesn't work that way. The Rome Statute isn't designed to work that way. It's always progressive in its contemplation of jurisdiction. So that's, uh, that's a fair point to make. Uh, my point is that we're looking at two things now. My point is that uh, going forward, it's necessary to amend the Rome Statute so that we, we're not caught up in this situation again in future. That's the point there. But as for other, other you know, solutions are being canvassed, and then this, some of them we have to deliberate upon very carefully what that portends. For instance, there's this movement to create a special tribunal in relation to the crime of aggression, just to complement the work ICC is doing in relation to the other crimes already. So, and that's uh, Mr. Gordon Brown, the former UK Prime Minister, is leading that effort to create a special tribunal for the crime of aggression in Ukraine. Uh, as I see it, uh, there are some questions arising from that in many ways. But one thing, I, personally, as a matter of principle, I see no uh, difficulty with that. The difficulty would be if it is being done only to get at put, uh, Putin and the Russians now. And after that, no, we're not. Uh, we, we shut down the idea of, you know, creating a general avenue of jurisdiction for those who are committing this sort of crime in future. That would be problematic from my perspective. And here, Greg, let's remember here one thing. We cannot have ad hominem criminal law, international criminal law. And this is not a new idea, by the way. 
if you will recall the story of Nuremberg. After the Second World War, the Allies were resolved to prosecute the leadership of Axis powers, specifically the Nazi leaders and, you know, leaders of Japanese regime at the time for the war of aggression, primarily, and the other crimes as well. And it was called the you know, crimes against peace was the war of aggression. So that was the resolve of the Allies. They've been drumming about it from the beginning. Then the war ended and Robert Jackson was tapped to lead the American Air Force to organize this thing in London. So there was a London conference. Now you had the Russians, the, the French, the Americans, and the British trying to resolve their you know, differences in legal procedure to create this mechanism to try the Nazi war criminals in Nuremberg. So they had to work to resolve difficulties and compromises were made. But the Americans drew the line somewhere. The American delegation drew the line somewhere. You know where that line was? That because the, the Russians were trying to define crimes in a way that would be peculiar only or apply only to the Nazi leaders. And the Americans said, no, that's not going to happen. We, other than that, we're not going to agree to a compromise on this. We will rather not have this exercise at all. Let's all go home than to have crime defined such that only Nazi leaders can be held liable in, for that sort of thing or history can view as having committed that crime. The Americans said, no, the crimes must be defined such that the leaders of any nation who engage in similar conduct would also be seen to have committed international crimes. And they pushed that, and that was generally, at, in the end, uh, the agreement. So that it will be difficult to now go back to, yes, let's define or construct international law so that it can only apply to certain people whom we don't like at particular times, and then other times, um, no, business as usual. That will be difficult to support. And there are a number of different proposals now floating around. So as you say, the, the proposal that's sort of associated with Gordon Brown and Chatham House, which is sort of a extraordinary tribunal, there are other proposals that there be sort of a hybrid tribunal set up, I think proposed by the UN General Assembly under the Uniting for Peace resolution together with Ukraine. So it would be this hybrid model. And I think the, the, the model that has been used as a precedent for this idea is the, the court for Sierra Leone. And then there are some other recommendations or proposals as well. I think uh, Kevin John Heller has suggested uh, something along the lines of a, a hybrid model using the Council of Europe as the institution for uh, setting up the tribunal. Do you sort of have thoughts on why any one of these would be superior as, as the model for, or the, the institutional setup for prosecuting the crime of aggression in the context of Ukraine? Uh, for me, it's a matter of principle, the principle being accountability. There needs to be accountability for people who commit international crimes. You, you said that the war in Ukraine is arguably a war of aggression. I'm sorry, a crime of aggression. Well, I think I, I could be more forthcoming with that. <laughs> for me, it goes beyond arguably. We, we understand the definition of a crime of aggression, UN Resolution 3314, you know, bracket uh, 29 of 1974, incorporated it in the division of a crime of aggression in the Rome Statute. And now, it doesn't matter what you call what you're doing or uh, you don't call it anything. Once you use force against 
another state who has not used force against you, so you're not engaged in the war of self-defense, or on the other person is not poised to attack you, then you use force. That is a war of aggression, and the war of aggression is an international crime. And there's no equivocation in my books about that. Now, the model so for me is about accountability for international crimes. And as long as we get to that accountability, we can worry about the details. Again, up to a point, uh, we, we don't want to have a dominant systems. So we use um, an adult model now to cover that gap. Yeah, mistake we made in the past, but we shouldn't, that shouldn't tie us, uh, hold us down. We resolve that issue, but then we, in tandem, adjust the Rome statute so we don't have that kind of scenario again in future, right? So whatever model we use in creating, uh, covering this gap of accountability for now, I don't worry too much about whether it is done according to the Sierra Leone model or the Senegal Hissen hybrid trial model um, using the Council of Europe. It's not only the gentleman whose name you mentioned that I proposed it. It is not, in my view, an unworkable idea. When I was at the ICC, the, when I was the president of the court, the question often asked me was, well, the African Union is trying to give the African court jurisdiction over international crimes. What do you think? And I, my view was always, as long as that did not exclude the jurisdiction of the ICC, Complementarity is a broad concept in my view. You have complementarity at the, you know, the micro level, which is the national level. Okay. Beyond that, you can have complementarity at an intermediate level. That is a regional body creating it. All right. State A is unable or unwilling to do it. Then state A is a member of our sub-regional group. So we would construct something to do justice at that intermediate level, but then uh, for other things that can go up to the ICC, those should go up to the ICC. So I see no difficulty with the Council of Europe conceiving of that kind of intermediate model of uh, administration of justice and doing it at that level. It was done in the case of Eastern Hebrew. I don't see why it should be difficult uh, as a matter of principle to do it in the present case as well. So I guess one issue that has come up in the discussion of this in the blogosphere is whether, depending on which model is used, when you're prosecuting someone like Putin himself or Lavrov, people who would otherwise enjoy immunity, rationi personae, whether in some models that immunity would actually uh, operate as a shield if it were not a true international tribunal, and even depending on the, the nature of the international tribunal, it could be argued that the immunity would operate. And I, I think there are differing views on this. Again, uh, Kevin John Heller has a, a piece on Opinio Juris, which sort of drills down into this in really interesting ways, looking at sort of the, the language of the ICJ in the arrest warrant case and the extent to which it sort of leaves open some questions about what kinds of international tribunals could pierce that immunity and, and what couldn't. So do you have a sense of whether, in fact, some models might run into problems, at least with the highest level individuals who might become uh, subject to prosecution for, for the crime of aggression. 
the way you put it, you point it to me, you probably would not be surprised to know that my answer is there is no, no immunity recognized by customer international law for heads of state. And uh, we don't have enough time to discuss the details of that. I am writing a book on the subject, by the way. So, oh, so. wow. Okay. So we'll have to have you back. But give us the, the Reader's Digest version. Like, what's the... The, the Digest, the, the, it just at any one, Craig, I have watched with absolute consternation. And uh, it's been disheartening to actually hear international lawyers argue that customer international law recognizes municipalities of state. And I, the most charitable way to put it is that those who do that have not sort of studied the history of evolution of international law carefully or have not reflected upon what has been done carefully. You only need to study the records of the Paris Peace Conference carefully and move it to 1945. You only need to study the records of the 1945 London Conference carefully and what followed that to know that there's absolutely no leg for that argument that comes from international law recognizes immunity for rights of state. No, it does not uh, in relation to international crimes. In international tribunals? In international tribunals. Now, so that's a starting point. Okay. But so if we start at the other end of the spectrum, right? So with the House of Lords and Pinochet, right? So domestic courts do recognize some immunity. And so, for example, one of the models that has been suggested is that countries like Germany that have a, the crime of aggression and universal jurisdiction laws on the books could be used, the courts of Germany could be used for the prosecution. But there you would have domestic courts running into the problem of immunity. And then I guess the, the next step in that sort of chain of logic is if a group of countries come together and create a court which they clothe with the language of international tribunal, but it's simply a court created by some small group of countries. Is it truly an international tribunal for the purposes that you're uh, suggesting? And it differs, of course, from the ICTY or the ICTR, which were delegated the authority by the Security Council or creation of the Security Council, and therefore were true international tribunals in which immunity, of course, would not apply. But if it's the creation of some small group of states, uh, are you s saying then that from your perspective, such a tribunal would have no problems with immunity? See, here is a confusion here. And this is what confusion I've, I've had a lot of scholars make who engage in this debate. There's a confusion between jurisdiction and immunity. They're ah, not the same yes. thing. I, I totally agree with you there. Of course. They're not the same thing at all. Now, the, the fact that a particular person does not have immunity does not mean that a particular court has jurisdiction to try that person. Sure. It's like two different concepts altogether. Yes. So my students confuse this all the time. It gets confused. The people confuse it all the time. Uh, you can have, I remember when I was studying legal practice in, in, in Nigeria, one judge in particular, I think many of them, when I, you, know, you, you come and you argue your motion and then the judge will say, yes, Mr. Ebo Suji, uh, suddenly interesting, but do I have jurisdiction? Do I have power to grant you the prayer you, you're asking for here? That's something else. So that's the question that each tribunal must ask itself. Sure. And then we go to what is the basis of jurisdiction. Customer international law may not, does not recognize immunity for heads of state in relation to international crimes, but customer international law never granted any, any particular court jurisdiction to exercise. No, you have to derive your jurisdiction somewhere. It's not customer international law. It has to be an instrument, a treaty. Then the question then becomes, all right, on what basis should a particular court uh, have that jurisdiction? That's where they are getting at, isn't it? 
Well, sure. But if the German court assumes jurisdiction over the crime of aggression under universal jurisdiction, and let's just assume for the sake of argument, as with Pinochet, there was no question that the House of Lords had jurisdiction under the Convention Against Torture. Or to be more precise, there was a separate question as to whether there was jurisdiction under the Convention Against Torture, which the court decided there was. But then the question was whether Pinochet enjoyed immunity or ratione personae, which of course he didn't, he was no longer head of state. But, but that question was a live issue. So you're quite right, separate and apart from the jurisdiction was whether there was immunity. And so I guess the argument that some are making is that some tribunals, to the extent that they are not truly international tribunals in the way that the ICTY or ICTR were created by the Security Council, they might have jurisdiction. Let's leave that, sex, that question aside for a moment, where they would get their jurisdiction. But assuming that they have jurisdiction, is it possible that they would actually run into problems over the argument that some accused, like Putin or Lavrov, would have immunity, uh, ratione personae? Again, here is a large area where any number of, you know, graduate student, doctoral students can write PhD thesis on. The premise of that question, of that dilemma, comes from the ICJ judgment in yes. Erodia. But then if you peel back on the Erodia case, the, the fact pattern in that case is what it is. Now, it may implicate, you know, other states or not. The fact pattern in Erodia does not control this situation in every circumstance. Yeah, you had Belgium exercising, you know, classic universal jurisdiction, and the ICJ said, no, uh, you cannot now. And so there's some sensible criticisms of that judgment. You know, we do not need to litigate it. I remember Antonio Cassese did write a piece in the European Journal of International Law at the time, commenting on that, saying, look, hang on here. Uh, is it really true that national courts do not have jurisdiction in relation to international crime? So that's still the question. But the different models in the current scenario we're talking about include, for instance, Ukraine is one instance here. Ukraine is doing it, or anchoring the jurisdiction of, say, European states doing it. Then you are getting into a scenario where there is that old Latin expression, fire vici. Fire vici is basically in war. Whoever loses is entirely at the mercy of the opponent. So when you go into a war, you know, be prepared that if you lose that war, you are subjugated to the authority of the opponent, that sort of thing. Uh, people, international law may not strictly operate on the basis of that now, but we do understand that international has not rejected the idea that when the, the consequences of a war would include that the co-belligerents will exercise jurisdiction to prosecute you know, nationals of the other side implicated in that war for violating international law. Uh, quite apart from a third state enjoying the same jurisdiction, although the Geneva Convention does say something about that, but not in relation to the crime of aggression. But in relation to the crime of aggression, there is no question that Ukraine has the right to defend itself against Russia. And part of that would include having jurisdiction to try those who committed international crimes in relation to Ukraine itself. Right, so Ukraine can now act as an anchor of jurisdiction on that basis. But we can argue how that thesis 
can radiate into other parts of international law to cancel out the thesis of those who say the heads of state enjoy immunity. But bringing it back to thesis here, I do conceive of a scenario where if the European countries, Ukraine in it, decide to set up a court, then yes, we can say that court can exercise jurisdiction, the crime of aggression. I don't rule out that scenario at all. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll have to have you back when your book is out to get into the weeds of, of immunity and jurisdiction. But one other, I guess, criticism or objection that has been raised to the creation of an independent tribunal, whichever model it is, is that it's going to be unsuccessful in the sense that all of the evidence for the crime of aggression is primarily in the hands of the Russians. It's going to be difficult, if, if not impossible, to get at. It's going to be difficult, if not impossible, to get actually lay your hands on the defendants. And so there's the suggestion that this will be setting up a tribunal for failure, in a sense, uh, and will then become emblematic of sort of the impotence of international law and will be counterproductive to the idea of, of accountability. What, what's your thought on that? I think it was, was it Abraham Lincoln that said that the fact that what we are seeking to do faces the probability of failure must not stop us from doing what we feel is the right thing to do at a particular time. I strongly, that would be a starting point for me, that, and you often encounter that, well, um, if this thing is done, it may not work. So what is the alternative? The alternative is to say, sorry, we're not going to do it. See, there is that expression, another quote, a popular one. Well, if you do it, you may not succeed, but if you don't do it, you will not succeed. <laughs> and continuing, we have um, Beyond the theories of those two expressions, parables and all that, we narrowed the thing down to what is actually from experience of history. That dilemma you, you described in the fact pattern, wasn't that the dilemma we had with Slobodan Milosevic? Uh, well, Luis Abu, chief prosecutor, if you indicted him, he is in power, you're not going to be able to get him. So that's going to be a Western effort. And that was the scenario with Charles Taylor as well. But eventually, you know, we know what happened in relation to, to those two. Right. So uh, I do not at all believe that we should not, we should stay action because of the concern that it may not succeed. In the meantime, let us also remember that you and I, we're small people in the, in the scheme of things. And like all other small people in the world, we saw what the pandemic did. People run went nuts, went start crazy when you're they're confined to their homes. You cannot leave your home. Uh, so it's, it's too constraining. But for these uh, big men, usually they are, their country is like the, the home. So if you confine them <laughs> there and they cannot travel overseas, and they, they run start crazy after a while. So they want to be able to travel the world, the red carpet trip and turn over the place. And you don't want to be going around and wondering whether somebody is going to arrest you and take you to a place where you may stand trial. That, in my view, is a powerful a factor that uh, people tend to forget in these things, let alone the idea that, well, somebody may not remain in power forever. Now, uh, you can have new dispensations and uh, the new regime may well say, okay, look, 
enough of this thing. Um, people need to account for their conduct. Well, I'm mindful of the time, and I, I do want to pivot to what the ICC does have jurisdiction over. But I guess on the way to that, I think we would be remiss if we didn't at least sort of touch on the issue of genocide. There's this sort of debate, if you will, at least in sort of the broader public media discourse, because both President Zelensky and, and then President Biden suggested that what is Russia's actions in Ukraine rise to the level of the genocide. President Macron has, has demurred on that point. And there have been any number of blogs on why it is or isn't or can't rise to the level of genocide. But I thought I would be remiss if I didn't ask your thoughts on this before we turn to the ICC's jurisdiction over war crimes and perhaps crimes against humanity. Of course, that has been that um, allegation we've seen. It's not only President Biden that made it and President Zelensky. If you remember, uh, President Putin himself well, made right. the same alle <laughs> allegation. So everybody is accusing everybody of committing genocide. And one thing that my experience and uh, some an international lawyer in this field who's prosecuted this thing and um, studied it and all that stuff knows is that the if you watched all the stories of genocide that we know of, all of them, think of anyone you, you can think of, almost all of them are linked to an armed conflict. You have a war going on and then people feel, well, of course, we expect people to be killed during the war. So that's what happens in war. So we're going to now go and kill a lot of people on the other side uh, because of, um, you know, racial, animals, um, nationality, religion. And ethnicity, and then yeah, kill okay, well, Here's now we're gonna just you know do that under the cover of the armed conflict. And to see that happen, so whenever that kind of allegation is made in the context of a war, I do not readily dismiss it. That's not to say that I just think it is made out. The point is, okay, these things tend to happen during war. Then if allegation is made, it needs to be thoroughly investigated. I do not care. Uh, on whose side or who, in whose mouth the, or from whose mouth the allegation comes, right? If it is the case that the Russians are committing a genocide against uh, Ukrainians, that needs to be investigated. If it is the case that Ukrainians are committing genocide against Russian ethnics in Ukraine, that needs to be investigated too. For me, that's where I do stand on, on the matter. All right. Well, let's pivot, as I said, to war crimes and the role that the ICC can play in, in the conflict in Ukraine. And I, I think we can assume the audience is well aware of the basic jurisdictional issues, um, but you may perhaps just refresh our recollection as to why it is that the ICC has a jurisdiction over war crimes, crimes against humanity within Ukraine. But I guess the threshold question that I have is, is there any concern that the gravity threshold and or the principle of complementarity might operate to limit the number and nature of war crimes that could be prosecuted by the ICC, and that this should give rise to some concern that the role of the ICC is not, uh, while important, is not sufficient to address all of the, the war crimes that are being committed in Ukraine. Uh, starting from that, I think it, that last point is that it is the case that ICC is one court that has one appeals chamber made up of five judges and basically 18 judges in, in total, any configuration of which uh, limits the amount of cases the court can do at a particular point in time. So structurally, you have that, you would have that difficulty, but there's also the difficulty of, you know, resources the court cannot take on every 
case in any situation that comes. So there is a place, a strong place for complementarity uh, regime to work in any situation, such as we see here, this huge full-blown war. So the gravity question you indicated that, I don't know that that's too much of an issue here. We saw what we see that, you know, cities gutted, destroyed, you know, Civilians allegedly, I have to say allegedly to this one, are victims of violations, images of um, people who have been killed wearing civilian clothing with, you know, hands tied behind their backs. Um, stories of mass graves need to be investigated, whether those uh, mass graves are people who died in the ordinary course of war. And there's a need to dispose of the bodies and the most convenient way to do that would be a mass grave or whether the mass grave had a sinister motive behind it. So all these things need to be investigated. So there's, for me, no question at all that there is a serious case of gravity here. Now, working backwards, now the first question is the premise of ICC's jurisdiction. That's where you started. And the premise of jurisdiction is clearly that although Ukraine not a state party to the Rome Statute, of course, it is surprising that even as of today, Ukraine is still not a state party to the Rome Statute. It is very, very surprising indeed. But uh, putting that to the side, uh, they have declared you know, acceptance of jurisdiction of the ICC, and which is one way that the ICC prosecutor can exercise proper motive, you know, authority to begin to look into things. So Ukraine has opened that through that declaration made in 2015, and about 40, 41 odd member states of the Rome Statute on the basis of that, and now also formally referred the situation to the ICC, thereby circumventing the uh, making it proper for the prosecutor to investigate directly without needing the authorization of judges to investigate. Right. So that's how we get into Ukraine. So Ukraine has more or less invited ICC to exercise jurisdiction. And that being the case, ICC does have jurisdiction over what happens on the territory of Ukraine and those implicated in what happened on the territory of Ukraine, even commanders who are remotely located away from Ukraine. So those would be how ICC uh, gets to exercise jurisdiction over war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide to the extent that the evidence would reveal any of those crimes haven't been committed. Right. And so now Ukraine has also announced that it is going to establish a special mechanism for the prosecution of war crimes. And in your view, is that going to be sufficient to fill in any of the gaps that are left by the ICC due to, as you said, lack of resources and so forth? Or is it your sense that if there is a special tribunal established for the purposes of prosecuting the crime of aggression, that it should also, sort of along the lines of the ICTY or ICTR, be engaged in prosecuting war crimes as well? I think the... the by Ukraine saying that it has established a mechanism to look into, uh, investigate and prosecute, it, 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 Ukraine has the right, and not just the right, but under the Rome Statute, and in fact, an obligation to do that. Let's not forget that the jurisdiction of the ICC is complementary. So Ukraine has the primary jurisdiction here, right? If it can exercise jurisdiction, it's willing to do so. Uh, it has a right and obligation to do that. That is not displaced by ICC's jurisdiction. So ICC can come in when Ukraine is unwilling or unable to do that. Let's forget that. Now, the sign of 
unwillingness is obvious. Somebody says, I don't, I'm not going to do it. And inability is also what it is. But it, somewhere in between those, uh, the state concerned can say, yes, yes, I have the right uh, to do this thing, but I'd rather have you, ICC, come and help us do that. Yeah. So I don't see any inconsistency with what Ukraine is proposing to do. It is, it should do that. The issue here is, um, that may well be circumstances in which the political considerations of the matter may make it wiser for the ICC to exercise jurisdiction so as to not have pressure on the Ukrainian authorities, either pressure generated by the internal politics of Ukraine or is with relationship, adversarial relationship or, you know, amicable one afterwards he may have with Russia. So I think it makes sense to bring in the, the ICC in the circumstances. So I don't see any inconsistency there. So that's on the level of principle. But in practicalities, as indicated earlier, ICC uh, will not be able to, even in the best of all worlds, may not be able to process all the um, questions of justice that come out of this event. Right. So I, I was wondering, perhaps by way of closing, we could sort of zoom back out to this original question of using the circumstances of the conflict in Ukraine to think about how to change the world, the international order going forward. Others have suggested that in the context of Ukraine, we should be mindful of the extent to which the role of Western states may have undermined the, you said, Balam regime, the collective security system, in the sense that there was the, the war in Iraq and the extent to which the, the Russian so-called legal justifications for the invasion of Ukraine sort of mapped on very nicely to justifications that had been made by the United States for any number of its in interventions in the last 30 years. And that in this way, you know, Western states in general, the United States perhaps in particular, have helped to undermine this system. And that it's important for us to think about uh, and to acknowledge that fact in thinking about how to uh, better restore the normative power of the USAID Balam regime and the collective security system. So do you have thoughts on that point? Thank you. That's a different question. Thank you very much for asking it. First of all, I would also say that the Western countries in general have undermined the use Balam in this sense, because um, from my experience, I think the EU has been very strong in promoting the idea of international criminal justice. Uh, that needs to be said um, very, very clearly. And the EU are Western uh, countries uh, for the most part. So I think uh, they deserve credit for standing up Spain, for instance, uh, the foreign minister of Sp Spain, a plain spoken, it's now the foreign minister of the EU, for instance, a plain spoken uh, diplomat who, who calls things that they are. He's been very robust in defending the ICC and promoting the rule of law. And that, so they've not, in general, undermined the use of the Western states. No, the difficulty has been that some countries within the Western hemisphere have, for purposes of protecting themselves, the idea of zero tolerance to risk or zero risk option have managed to create gaps that is now benefiting other people. That's the point I was making at ESO. Uh, by this pressure, I say it uh, was brought to bear by the P5s in order to, you know, uh, stop the ICC from exercising, exercising independent jurisdiction over the crime of aggression. That's a historical fact. The 
question now going forward is whether there will be a political willingness to, to fix that going forward, right? And you can also see that uh, from the perspective of the uh, P5s and their motivation for creating that gap, you mentioned the war in Iraq, that's fair. There are those who argue that, you know, that Vladimir Zelensky is not Saddam Hussein. There's no comparison between the two. Uh, Saddam Hussein basically was looking for nuclear weapons and Ukraine gave up its own nuclear weapons. And Saddam Hussein had gone out and invaded Kuwait, saying Kuwait was not a country and that sort of thing. Uh, so that was a war of aggression. Saddam Hussein had cast his own people. So there are people who point those out to say, let's not compare the things yet. And there's some merit to, to that uh, as a practical matter. But as a legal matter, of course, we also have to be mindful that with the laws, the laws are made not, you know, the laws that bind everyone are made not to catch the good people, but also to catch the bad folks. So if we are going to be honest about international law, we all have to construct it in the way that Robert A. Jackson said in 1945 at the end of the Second World War. We have to uh, remember that we cannot construct it in a way, sorry, build it in a way that it always serves our interest and not interest of everyone. The times when we have to accept that laws will work against us. So that is the point about international law. Uh, it needs to be constructed and approached in good faith. I think that's important to, to stress that for everyone. Let us hope that this experience of Ukraine now teaches the world to return to that project of building international law in a fair way, in a way that makes it applicable for everyone or to everyone and not in a way that gerrymanders it around so that it will not catch us, but hopefully catches somebody else. That is not the way to build the new world order. I actually think that's a great note to end on, but I would like to ask in closing, and I know the last time I asked you to recommend books, um, you, you suggested that that was going to get you into trouble. But perhaps you can suggest some readings that you think might be helpful for our listeners, either on the, the crime of aggression itself or the role of the ICC in the world. Well, um, uh, readings lately, I've been, actually, I'm working on this book and have continued to, to pour through the records of the, um, you know, Paris Peace Conference in 1919, as well as the records of the, um, uh, the London Conference of 1945. I would strongly recommend to all international lawyers, especially those interested in this subject, to look at those. It's not always just how I can tell you, well, if you want to wait until I, my book comes out, you can, also, <laughs> you can also do that. I'm not selling a book I haven't written yet. I'm still in process of doing so. So you can do that. But in the meantime, do that. Some of that, Craig, has been um, for your listeners, those who are able to catch the lecture I gave on. I think the 9th of November last year, I uh, delivered a lecture to the um, Western University, their annual uh, International Law and Global Justice Lecture. So I gave it the 9th of November, 2021. The title of it is uh, Immunity Before International Courts. Mm. Uh, how how there never was. So it's on, it's on um, YouTube. The reason I, I mention it is because it was not necessarily a, you know, a scripted, the lecture where I was reading from the lecture notes, it was a lecture where I decided, all right, I'm going to now pull up and put on display uh, using a PowerPoint and 
using that to pull up and show some of the ancient, or oh, sorry, historic records themselves. So people are actually seeing what those documents look like, including the minutes of meetings of the um, Commission on Responsibility in Paris and all that. So some of the primary documents are on display in that lecture. Interesting. All right. Well, we'll, we'll definitely get a link to that um, posted on the website. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for your time and thanks uh, for, for sharing your insights yet again. And uh, we look forward to having you back when the book is out and we can talk, we can get, really get into the weeds of immunity before international tribunals. Thank you very much. Thanks, Greg. Take care. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. If you have any comments, feedback, critiques, or suggestions for future episodes, please do send me an email. My contact info is on the website, which is at jibjabpodcast.com. You can also find links to the material discussed today and all the reading recommendations to date on the website. If you're enjoying the podcast or finding it helpful, please do spread the word, share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or mention it in your own blog posts or other writing. And do tell your friends, colleagues, or students about it. Also, there's now a PayPal button on the website for those who might like to donate a small amount to help with the cost of editing another production, which I will say do start to add up. For the price of an espresso or a latte, you can help keep us going. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter at at Podcast for updates on upcoming episodes. This podcast is produced by me, Craig Martin. The opening music is by Dream Machine, used on a Creative Commons license. Until next time, stay safe.